Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. This is Talk Radio. Across the UK, online, on DAB, and on your smart speaker. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. Good morning and welcome to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham right here on Talk Radio. It feels a little bit like deja vu all over again, doesn't it? Extinction Rebellion are back in town. Teaching unions are threatening to delay the start of the new school year. More than 800 illegal migrants have landed on our shores in one single day. And we're still wrestling with the evacuation programme out of Afghanistan. Oh yeah, uh, there's a G7 meeting as well. By the way, the last G7 meeting that they had in Cornwall, do you remember they all flew in? private jets all over the place, you know, lots of pictures of them posing on the beach, lots of barbecues, lots of dancing, lots of hugging, lots of kissing, lots of so-called declarations. Well, that was a complete and utter waste of time. May I remind you that Joe Biden, uh, the President of the United States of America, and Prime Minister Boris Johnson both agreed that it would be Britain all over the world helping America to solve problems, to sort things out, uh, to stand together, shoulder to shoulder. That didn't last long, did it? couple of months, maybe, before Afghanistan fell to the Taliban. It's hard sometimes to take any of this stuff seriously, isn't it? But we're going to try today, ladies and gentlemen. We're going to try very, very hard. First up, it's Baroness Hoey, the first lady of common sense, with her take on what's going on in Kabul. Why Priti Patel is so seemingly powerless to stop what has now become a literal invasion of England by hundreds of illegal migrants every single day. And also, what on earth is the point, by the way, of Sir Keir Starmer? We'll get the latest on the Taliban from Colonel Richard Kemp, former commander of the British forces in Afghanistan, and we'll be finding out just why parents are going to have to put up with more delays, more problems and even more frustrations for their children next month when schools are supposed to return to normal because you know what? They're not going to apparently. And why? Why not? What exactly is the problem? 0344 499 1000. I'm a bit grumpy today uh, for all sorts of reasons, which I cannot go into right now. We're also talking about GPs again, so we'd love to hear more of your stories. Have you been turned away from a surgery? Are you trying and failing to get an appointment? Are they fobbing you off because they're not there? We'll be asking Dr Charles Levinson why it's apparently going to get a lot worse because a lot of GPs are apparently thinking of going (laughs) part-time. What, you mean they're not part-time at the moment? 
How does that work exactly? 0344 499 1000. We're going live to California as well to catch up with the Donna Harvey. And Kevin O'Sullivan joins us too with his take on the latest nonsense from the BBC. Plus, we'll be bringing you the news that we predicted last year on the working from home imperative. Yes, that's right. Companies are now hiring people from Latvia and Lithuania as they've now worked out if you're not bothering to come into the office anyway, you can be replaced by cheaper alternatives from abroad. Told you. 0344 499 1000. You're listening to me, Mike Graham, on the fastest growing radio station on the planet. It is, of course, Talk Radio. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. Now, it will come as no surprise to you that this G7 meeting that's taking place today uh, is, in fact, going to be held virtually. Now, this is presumably because it's not necessary for them all to meet up together with their various partners, wives, husbands, etc., because it's too difficult to organise, or perhaps because of COVID, or perhaps because they don't fancy it, or perhaps they're all away on holiday and they don't really want to have to go anywhere else because it's in the middle of their holiday season. Whatever the reason is, surely it would have made more sense to have the last G7 meeting virtually as well, thereby saving everybody a hell of a lot of money. It was a waste of money. It was a waste of time. Nothing really came out of it, apart from a few rather nebulous and pointless statements, which turned out not to be true anyway. So here we are back at square one. It's taken 20 years, as somebody said, four presidents, trillions of dollars being spent for the Taliban to be replaced by the Taliban. That's right. And over in Afghanistan, where people are really, really struggling and really, really suffering, they're having to put up with the mealy-mouthed interpretations of politicians in the West who have abandoned them and who have said, basically, don't worry, we'll all be leaving on August the 31st. If you haven't made it onto a plane by then, tough. That's basically the message, isn't it? Absolutely disgraceful. 0344 499 1000 is the number. Let's kick things off with Baroness Hoey uh, from Lyle Hill and Rathlin. Kate, a very good morning to you. Good morning, Mike. Thank lovely you very morning here. Yes, well, thank you very much indeed for, for joining us. It is a lovely morning. It's quite a nice morning here. We're told there's going to be some kind of heat wave coming, but uh, but let's kick things off then in that case with uh, the astonishing story coming uh, out of Afghanistan uh, uh, and the ast- even more astonishing story coming out of the United States, where basically Joe Biden is more or less saying, look, if you haven't made it onto a plane by the end of the month, i.e. next Tuesday, um, that's that's your lot. Yeah. I mean, I think everyone must feel just horrified. You see all those dreadful pictures of people terrified, obviously. Uh, but then you think about all the people all over Afghanistan who haven't been able to, whose, whose you know, cities were overrun really quickly and weren't even able to get out to get to Kabul. Mm. So I suppose it's it's really, the, uh, you know, a very small number, actually, overall. But, uh, uh, you know, the thing is, we can't take everyone. We can't take the whole of Afghanistan out and put them all around the rest of the world. And I think, um, you know, it's easy now to blame everybody and everything. But the reality is that given that the Americans said they were going to leave, um, then a lot of this, you know, moving people out who are at risk should have happened ages ago. I, I, I mean, I don't understand why it was all left so quickly, other than that the Americans and the British intelligence thought that for some reason the Taliban were just going to sit back and, mm. and uh, do nothing. Yes. And I just do not understand how, how our intelligence was so low, so weak, so so 
bad. Mm. That we didn't realize the Taliban. I mean, lots of people were writing that this is what would happen who weren't in Afghanistan. So how on earth did we miss it yes. so badly? Well, that seems to me to be the astonishing part of it, that, you know, they must have been given different bits of advice. And it seems to me that Joe Biden it may go down in history as not only one of the worst presidents in, in, in American uh, time, recent history, but, but also one of the most callous because he doesn't seem to care. He really doesn't. I mean, when he spoke at his last sort of announced pronouncement to the public, you know, he spent the first five, ten minutes on, on the hurricane, yeah. thereby sort of giving away what his real agenda is. His real agenda has got nothing to do with foreign affairs. His real agenda has got everything to do with his home uh, support, his home um, uh, voting effort in the midterms, and, and he appears to care nothing uh, about the lives of other people in other countries. Yes, and it's been very interesting to watch people who, you know, seem to feel that if Trump was defeated, that that would be, you know, the beginning of this wonderful, wonderful new relationship with the United States, that we were going to have a president who, who cared about the world. And actually, you know, when you look back now and look at some of the things that Trump did on in foreign affairs, mm. yes, of course, he, he made the decision that they were going to leave, but he did have a plan. Yes. And it seems that that plan, once Biden came in, just got completely ignored yeah. and uh, you know I, I i still you know being a little bit um cynical i just it, it's it's interesting watching um newspapers some of the media who were so anti-trump now desperately scratching around to try and find some things good to say about biden yeah when actually i think he's behaved really appallingly because as you say he could he could show that he cared he could show that he understands how many people have who've, who've been promised to get out or not going to get out. Right. But I, I still get back to that. We cannot take everyone from Afghanistan. And of course, all the best people, in a sense, the people who believed in democracy and who worked with our, our forces are all leaving. So that leaves... Um, you know, Afghanistan in a in the situation now where presumably there will be very, very little uh, opposition and the Taliban will be running a very, very appalling um, Islamic state. Well, that's right. And I mean, even more callously, uh, they've, they've made it very clear as well that basically uh, any refugees that happen to come as a result of his abandonment of the country um, will have to come to Europe. And it's none of their business to take them in America. And I know they've taken some already. Um, but basically, their view is, is that we don't take refugees from Afghanistan. You know, that's Europe's problem. I don't understand why it's Europe's problem. No, I, I don't either. And I don't understand. Well, I, I mean, I suppose we all understand that I'm America is ultimately quite a, an isolationist country in many ways. You know, they look how many people in America don't even have passports yes. and don't travel. So th there is this, but it's clearly he's doing this for, he believes that he's got uh, a support in America for what he's doing. He's got these midterm elections coming up and um, all the international sort of promises that were made. And, you know, when we look back on it, we went into Afghanistan probably at the right time, sorry, for the right reasons mm. in that we were trying to stop the ISIS terrorist group. Now, that was sort of successful, wasn't it? We did stop them. and But since then, we haven't been able, um, and, you know, I'm not an expert on it, but we haven't been able to obviously work enough with the Afghan people mm. or else we have to just accept 
that there are an awful lot of people in Afghanistan who actually want to be run by an Islamic state. Well, I think tragically that is the case. And I, I, I don't think Donald Trump's decision to, to come out of the, the country was the wrong one. I think it was the right no. one. But as you say, it was done uh, with a view to uh, some kind of actual deal that could be done uh, or make or threats even that could have been made to the Taliban. Whereas uh, Biden just literally cut and run. Worst of all, as far as I'm concerned as well, leaving all the hardware behind. So the Afghan, uh, the new Taliban now have got all this really, really high grade American military equipment. I mean, it beggars belief. Yes, and if they were serious, they could have stayed with a small number of of of, of uh, armed forces there, as we have, as we did after the war in Germany for yeah. a very long time, and then we could have helped the um, Afghan army to continue to look after their weapons, to you know, be there as a sort of support mechanism. But it just seemed that we were totally cutting and running, and I think that's what really makes us feel. As, as sort of Westerners who supposedly care about what's happening in the world, you know, to look like we've just been, um, well, we've just been beaten very, very badly. And uh, we haven't even been able to retreat in a way that has left us with some dignity. Yes, absolutely right. And which brings us on to the knock-on effect, of course, of what's going to happen. And that will be uh, clearly uh, European problems, refugees flooding across uh, the, the continent, because we've already seen Greece saying they're going to build a wall um, between Greece and Turkey uh, somehow to stop too many Afghan migrants coming illegally. We've got 828 people uh, making a journey uh, and landing on our shores on one day alone now, Saturday. I mean, every single week there's a new record. Um, there's a piece in the mail today uh, about some uh, um, dinghies landing on a beach um, in Broadstairs, um, uh, 20 people just getting off a dinghy and walking away. And you get to the point where you're thinking, you know, when is this going to stop and why do we keep talking about it? And why does Pretty Patel continually not do anything? We keep hearing that, oh, they're going to change the laws. It's going to be more difficult in the uh, in the autumn. Well, it'd be too late by then. There'll be about 30,000 people here by then from this year. No, this th this has been warned about by many people who weren't listened to for a long time that this is what was going to happen if something didn't happen to stop it earlier mm. on when there was very few boats coming over. And, and uh, until people in France or in, in those other countries have come through safe countries and want to end up in the United Kingdom, until they realise, until they're told, until it means something, that actually what the, if they come that way, if they come across in a boat like that in a land in in um, our shores, then they will not be treated as even given the opportunity to decide whether they're an asylum seeker. And we know most of them are not asylum seekers. No. We are going to see the real asylum seekers probably coming in a, a much longer, you know, a much later time um, via the Afghanistan, you know, because of what's happened in Afghanistan. But I think they should be told very clearly, if you arrive off a boat illegally like this, then you will be sent back. You will be sent back somewhere. And, and I'm, you know, France clearly is not being very supportive uh, of what, um, you know, of what we want to do, despite getting lots of money from us. And I, you just wonder why on earth are we paying them all those millions? Because it's clearly not making a mm. difference. I think they said they they stopped 200 people. Well, 800 came in and they stopped 200. Yeah. I mean, that's just not not good enough. But I, I think they have to start treating this. And I've been saying this for a while, um, Kate. As, 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 as if it's as bad as a drug smuggling business. This is a people smuggling business. It's organised crime. It is absolutely and utterly um, a money-making venture. And uh, it needs to be treated as such. It should not be treated as if we are doing some kind of humanitarian uh, deed and a good thing by accepting these people. You know, we don't know who they are. We don't know where they're going. We don't know where they've come from, by and large. It's an absolute shambles. It is. And so many of them are coming in and not even being 
formally recognized, registered, as you mentioned. Uh, but you see, Mike, if you say things like that, you know what's going to happen. You will be accused of being the most appalling racist. Yeah, well, uh, don't worry, I'm magical. used to that. I mean, I mean I'm, I'm, quite happy, I'm quite happy to be accused of a number of things. But I mean, the problem, the problem is that people still, and maybe it's beginning to change, people are still quite frightened almost to speak out and say what they think about this because they know that they will be completely, you know, got at by yeah. either social media or... or, or in, and, and I think we have to start saying that, yes, we are a tolerant country. Yes, we have taken many people over the years. For example, the, you know, the Ugandan Asians, we're going to take many, many people from Hong Kong. Mm. But we have to do it in a proper way. And we can't just allow these, these kind of thug-type money-making uh, smugglers to be able to exploit people to come into our country and we have no idea who no. they are, where and, they come and, from. I mean, and, and, on, and on that, right, um, as far as the uh, tolerant nation status thing goes, that's all very well, but it's also madness to pretend that admitting more and more people, and we're talking about something between 500 and 750,000 people a year now who are admitted to this country uh, through the immigration system, and that's largely legal, but partly illegal. Um, it was, it's idiotic to make out that that is not going to change the way that Britain is 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 actually managed because you know uh, twenty thousand people, for example, if they come across uh, the channel on these dinghies, that's the size of a small town like Hailsham in Sussex. That's twenty thousand people just coming that way alone. Yes, and we, yet we have, you know, many people who've served our armed forces with distinction, veterans, still sleeping on the streets mm. or not in, in very adequate accommodation. We've still got very, very overcrowded uh, situations and difficulty for, for people who've been living in this country all their lives to get to get housing. Yeah. And, you know, I don't think we can I don't think we can sort of walk away from that and not actually start that debate, because where are these people all going to go? They're going to send them off, presumably around the country and local councils will be getting, I imagine, some more money to help do, you know, look after them. But ultimately, you know, we are we are not. Yeah, but capable we've got but we've, we've got a, we've got people. a creaking infrastructure, uh, Kate, where people can't get to see a doctor. They can't get their kids into the school they want to get them into. They can't get on on a, an NHS dentist uh, list because they're full. You know, um, the roads are already chock a block. There's no real uh, infrastructure in terms of transportation. There's no jobs necessarily for these people to do. You know, it's madness to not actually even be talking about it. Well, I think that that is the thing. That's where programmes like yours and, and, and a few others and even, um, you know, GB News is pretend, prepared to actually talk about these things. Yeah. There's been a silence about it. There's been an, an almost a feeling that every liberal type person must accept that this is going to happen. We have to do our, uh. our duty. Well, I, I accept we have to pay our, you know, play our role in all of this because there are some real genuine asylum seekers who are at risk. But Frankly, when you look at all these people, and they're nearly all youngish men, yeah. I mean, that's the reality. The media will pick up one family with a little child to show it, but the re show them. But the reality is it's, it's, um, it's single men. Yeah. And I also think a lot of these people at the airport in Afghanistan, I mean, are they just leaving their families? Some are families, but the vast majority, again, of them are single single men and they're just leaving their families in Afghanistan. Yes, absolutely. Stay with us, Baroness Howie, if you would. We've got a couple of other things to talk to you about, not least a couple of books that are out uh, that you've been reviewing of Sir Keir Starmer uh, and also uh, some of the rather strange happenings in Northern Ireland that have been going on lately as well. Uh, we'll keep talking uh, to Baroness Howie of Lardin and Rathlin coming next on Talk Radio. This is Talk Radio across the UK, online, on DAB Plus and on the Talk Radio app. 
The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. Welcome back to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham right here on Talk Radio. We're talking to Baroness Hoey uh, of Lull Hill and Rathlin. Uh, Kate, I just wanted to ask you a couple of things about Northern Ireland that I'd spotted on the uh, uh, on the social media merry-go-round this week. Um, an astonishing video from Londonderry of the INLA. Um, uh, several sort of hooded characters coming out, wearing bal- balaclavas over their heads, carrying guns, walking into what looks like a very ordinary um, sort of recreation ground almost, surrounded by homes and houses, and firing a sort of a gun salute and then going back to wherever it was they came from seemingly completely um un, uh, uninterrupted yes and this uh, this actually is the the sort of main story in northern ireland today because this uh, came out at the weekend mm. and of course the police made a statement which was really done done nothing to alleviate uh, people's concerns that basically they knew that there was a, 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 the likelihood of, of guns being on this, but that they felt it was better, you know, for uh, they didn't want to kind of uh, upset the community uh, by by going in and, and trying to arrest these people. And uh, the, it really is pretty shocking because, the, you know, the PSNI more and more, that's the police service in Northern Ireland, more and more are, are looking like they're actually frightened of um, terrorists. And there are more and more, not from the, um, the Sinn Féin IRA, but from the uh, INLA, which is one of the little groups that have grown up, yes. you know, as once, once sort of splinter, group, right. splinter groups. There's always been a history of splinter groups in, in, in Irish uh, politics and right. in, in Irish terrorism. Um, but yes, it's, it's annoyed people very much because there's a feeling that the police is being rather one-sided, that if it had been a, a, you know, an orange parade or some kind of loyalism, that they would have gone in and much, much more quickly. Yeah. But these are guns in the street. Those are guns that still haven't been taken off the street. So where are they? And there's a real danger that you know, we're just allowing more and more people to think that they can get away with things like this. Yes. And so therefore, I suppose, in terms of the, the, the Northern Ireland Assembly and, and Stormont and everything else, there's still a bit of reticence to do anything about that kind of thing as well. Because they see from, from your uh, Twitter that Sinn Féin are apparently now trying to uh, ban Belfast City Council from marking the Queen's 70th Jubilee. It's, it's very sad. You know, we we had the Good Friday Belfast Agreement, which everyone thought was going to be the change. Mm. And yes, things have been better. But the reality is we have one of the parties in power in Northern Ireland, Sinn Féin, who have to be in power. The, the, the legislation its a mandatory coalition and they don't want Northern Ireland to be successful. They don't want any sign of Britishness to be celebrated. And um, yet they want to push and push things like the Irish language. And just re- this is our t- anniversary 2021, 100 years in Northern Ireland. They stopped even a commemorative stone being put in the grounds of Parliament buildings. And, you know, it's, it's, it's all be seemingly being allowed to carry on drip, drip, drip just pushing Northern Ireland into uh, a, a united Ireland. And, mm. you know, I would have hoped that the British government, our government, would actually recognise that unless they start speaking up about some of these things, but they won't stand up to Sinn Féin because they're always frightened at the back of their minds that something might come back and they might end up with, with uh, you know, bombs going yeah. off in London. And that's mm-hmm. what it's all been about. So people are getting very annoyed, very angry. That plus the protocol, I think we're in for a very difficult autumn yes. once once we get August over. Yes, I was going to ask you about the protocol because I haven't really heard much. We haven't heard much on this side of the uh, of the, well, of the water anyway. I don't think there's much, much happening at the moment. I mean, negotiations are supposed to be going on. The command paper that was brought out by David Frost, which was basically saying we could 
um, uh, bring in Article 16 because societal, there are societal and environmental and economic difficulties in Northern Ireland, but we're not going to yet because we want to be nice people and we want to chat to you at the EU and I'm sure we can come to some kind of agreement. So we'll see that's supposed to be happening in, in September, but the grace period, this period of things not actually happening uh, ends at the end of September for so many different um, trade trade agreements, mm. and it, you know that is another deadline. And the the problem with just putting pushing that off for another three months, which is what the EU will probably suggest, is that then you know what we what what the EU are trying to do is almost embed the protocol in so that people actually almost think, oh, there's no point. You know, we're never going to get rid of this. Let's just try and you know put up with it yeah. and that's what i think is annoying a lot of people who don't want to just put up with it mm. and want to see an end of it i still have confidence that um you know i hope let's say that um the government will be tougher david frost is definitely tougher and i hope that this time we say you know enough's enough we're, yes. we're not carrying on with this breaking our country the united kingdom up and and hiving off Northern Ireland mm. because the next thing it'll be Scotland. Yeah, well, absolutely right. I think it's a very dangerous process uh, to allow to happen. Finally, uh, Kate, I was reading with interest your review of a couple of books about Sir Keir Starmer, uh, one by um, uh, Lord Ashcroft. Tell us uh, what you made of them both yeah. because well, I, was, I was very amused by, by some of the things you wrote about how, oh you know, he's just so bland and, it, and it actually the more you read about him, the more bland he gets. Yeah, and I, I said, you know, I, I was asked to review two books, this one by Michael Ashcroft, Red Knight, and a book just called uh, Starmer by Nigel Cawthorn. They both came out more or less at the same time. Um, and I, I, you know, I didn't know Keira Starmer very well at all. He was only in Parliament a few years, literally before. Well, you I were saying he barely he, spoke to you because of your stance on Brexit, right? I barely spoke to him. He didn't like those of us who were opposed to Brexit and had campaigned for it. Uh, there weren't many of us, but he certainly didn't didn't go out of his way to talk to us. Um, so I read genuinely read these books thinking, oh, I'll find out more about why people supported him and all of that. And actually, I, I ended up feeling that I knew very, very little uh, more than what already had been in, in the um, in the papers. Uh, I mean, Michael Ashcroft's book is a much more uh, carefully researched book, and mm. certainly he's, he's gone into more detail. But he comes over... Honestly, as I've always thought, very legalistic, very interested in, 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 in the kind of legal attitudes to everything. No real personality, no real hinterland, no real feeling that he can get out there and, you know, enthuse people. Yeah. So I'm afraid, I, I mean, I didn't, I don't think I could say that I did a hatchet job, but I certainly didn't. Um, and of course, you know, when you're reviewing a book, you're reviewing, you know, the writing and all of that sort right. of stuff. And I, I, I but I, I um I mean, I'm just saying I wouldn't suggest that anyone reads it thinking that they're going to get to know him a lot more no. or what he would do if he was ever, which I think is highly unlikely, but if he was ever prime minister. Yeah. Well, it also underlines, doesn't it, his kind of slightly faux uh, and fake working class credentials because, uh, you know, he's always banging on about how his mother was in the NHS, his father was, you know, worked in a factory. It's not quite like that. No, it wasn't actually. There's a lot. Lord Ashcroft did a lot of research into into the fact his father was a very highly sort of qualified uh, engineer, mm. you know, involved in his own uh, his own business really. And he did go to um, a grammar school, and that doesn't make you, you know, middle class, upper class. I went to grammar school, but of course that grammar school did become a private school. Um, so it's it's you know he he's just not quite. I think that was one of the criticisms that actually. Um, uh, I think it was Mark Seddon who used to edit Lib Labour's Tribune mm. said that that was part of his problem really that he 
he banged on all the time about his working class roots. Um, you know, instead of actually doing things that that would show that he cared about what was happening, mm. and of course he didn't care about what working class people felt when he uh, when he campaigned so hard to get a second referendum. Yes, and that's absolutely. why we lost our red wall seats. Yes, quite. Well, listen, I can talk to you all day, uh, but we'll have to just get you back on again soon. Kate Hurry, thank you very much indeed. Baroness Hurry, of course. I call her the first lady of common sense, quite rightly, because uh, there was an awful lot of common sense spoken there. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you found the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. Let us talk now to Toby Falston, who's uh, with Robert Walters. Uh, he's the CEO uh, of that organisation. There's a big, big piece in the mail on Sunday at the weekend in which it was saying uh, that a lot of recruitment uh, is now going on in other countries because many employers in this country have worked out, well, look, if you're not going to come to the office, if you're going to work from home, we can get some people to work from their homes in other countries because it might actually be cheaper. Uh, let's find out, let's find out, find out now uh, from Toby what's going on. Toby, very good uh, morning to you. Welcome. Morning, Mike. Thanks for having me. Not at all. Fascinating this because uh, back in September of last year, we were having a lot of these kind of conversations around um, the orders that were coming out of Downing Street where people were being told, you know, it's safe now. COVID's over. Go back to work. We want the, the towns and the cities of this country to, to get back to normal. And they sort of reversed it again within a couple of days, didn't they? And went, oh, hang on a minute. Uh, there might be some new variants. So maybe just carry on working from home. And I still talk to a lot of people, Toby, who think that some offices will never return to pre-COVID sort of, you know, uh, occupation, if you like. Yeah, so I mean, look, it's, it's still early uh, when I look at the clients we operate with. So we, we tend to operate in the mid-market, white-collar, professional services. That, that's the area that we specialise right. in. Um, we've seen, uh, well, we've seen a lot of the very big companies who've come out publicly and said that they're going to continue working remotely, certainly until the end of the year. We've got a lot of the sort of, I would call, SME, middle-sized companies that have adopted more of a hybrid approach, which is also what we've done as well, which is sort of two to, two to three days a week in the office. The reality is right now, there is no elixir. No one really knows exactly what the outcome is going to be because we've all been cast into this pandemic world of lockdowns and working from home. I think that's absolutely generated some benefits for people. It's enabled us to look at areas perhaps where we can adopt some flexibility. And of course, the other things, Mike, that 
this is not just pandemic related. I mean, a lot of this remote working was going on pre-pandemic. Mm. I mean, certainly before um, March of last year, I, I noticed just on a personal level that Friday traffic and Friday trains were very much quieter than the rest of the week. And it, it led me to believe anyway that an awful lot of people were basically working from home on a Friday. Well, yeah, I mean, I think what's happened is is that some of it's been forced. Obviously, people haven't had a choice. Mm. And then there's also been a big shift in balance because the job market's improved. Um, when I look not just at the UK, but globally, the ONS statistics have just come out in August showed that there were 953,000 job vacancies between May and July this year. That's up to nearly 300,000 jobs up compared to the previous quarter. And we're actually now ahead in terms of job vacancies uh, than we were pre-pandemic. Mm. So the job market's buoyant. We've got people, obviously, that have come out of various furlough schemes and obviously opportunities are picking up. Combined with that, you've got this sudden sort of world where everybody's been working remotely. So it's thrown everything up in the air. And I think it's causing now a lot of companies to rethink and also a lot of employees to rethink in terms of do they want to be in the office or do they want to be working yeah. from home? I mean, I guess so much of it depends on the industry you're in, doesn't it? Because I've got friends in the in the hospitality business who are telling me that they've got real shortages of staff and it's nothing to do with one particular thing. But a lot of it has to do with the fact that because they were so uh, unsure of what their futures were going to be like in the past year, a lot of people who would have worked in those businesses have now just gone off and got jobs elsewhere. Yeah, I mean, I think you've got, I mean, technology is obviously a, a key area. You've got a lot of very technical people. Uh, again, pre-pandemic, people were being employed overseas in, in some of the Baltic countries, places like South Africa, for example. If you look at places like San Francisco, they've done this for years and they've gone overseas and acquired real technical skills. Mm. Language then becomes a question. Obviously, the, the ability to communicate in whatever language that, that the company is based in. But um, I think that the, the for our industry, and I think for many industries, one of the big challenges is the um, is the new people coming into the organisation. Yeah, how are they going to learn? Uh, and it's as simple as and certainly when I started at Robert Walters, I just listened. All I did was listen to all the good people around me, picked up on how they operated, how they worked, and that was a huge education for myself. Mm. And I think that's that's the concern that a lot of companies have. The other part, of course, is culture, and actually. That conversation, the fun element of coming into work and waking up and looking forward and going to see your colleagues and having some fun in the office. And these are the things which uh, I think everybody is now asking themselves in terms of what the future looks like. Yeah, I think that's absolutely right. I mean, one of the things that, that I was reading uh, that you said to the man on Sunday was about places like South Africa. Um, where you've got something like 35% unemployment. Uh, the, the, the currency um, exchange is also an advantage for some companies as well. Absolutely. Uh, yeah, we, we as a company, we have actually moved some of our digital um, uh, resource down to South Africa, and that's worked very well for us. But inherently, as an organization, and like many companies, we are we don't we don't make anything as a company. So we are a, a services business. Yeah. We are about relationships. And the value of being together is incredibly important. That said, we have also adopted a more flexible approach. And we have realized that there are benefits for our employees in that. I personally think over the next six months, you're going to have a lot of companies looking at whether or not they adopt the fully hybrid model, sorry, the fully remote model. But interestingly, companies like HSBC, companies like Apple and BT, they've all pressed pause and they've all said, actually, we're going to continue with the remote work until the end of the year, because I think like many companies, 
we're working out what we think is going to be best for our organization. Also recognizing that because the job market is is so buoyant right now, obviously there is more choice for the employees. Yes. And I mean, we all know of big companies that have got IT departments in places like India. How easy is, is it for companies to, say, hire a load of workers in somewhere like South Africa? Do you have to get involved in all sorts of different legal processes? How does it work? Yeah, I mean, obviously, there's employment uh, challenges that you need to overcome. You need to look at the legal issues. You need to look at not so much visas because you're obviously hiring people locally from those markets. One of the big challenges, and, and we are one example, we have a, a we have a, what we call global service centers around the world. And it's about how we are maintaining the culture of our organization and how we're maintaining it, what we stand for an organization. One of the reasons why people stay with our company is because they enjoy being part of the company. They enjoy the people they work with. And the final bit, of course, is that learning element. So you can hire great people. There are some hugely talented people in uh, some of these overseas markets where perhaps you know, the wage cost is not as high. You look at places like India and China, they're not that easy necessarily for people from those countries to get visas here in the UK. So obviously you've got a big resource of people demographically. It's a much bigger population and there are some very, very bright people. Yeah. But also, don't you think part of the kind of change, if you like, in attitude is driven by the fact that you can do it because a lot of people probably do prefer to work from home. A lot of people don't fancy the commute that they would normally take, say, an hour uh, each way every single day. Nobody wants to do that if they don't have to. But if it suddenly becomes a thing that their job might actually be in peril because it could go to somebody else who's cheaper in another country they suddenly might be a bit more keen to come in, if you know what I mean. Yeah, I mean, there's lots of discussion going on, and there isn't that much sort of data in terms of recent data, which which supports you know what what we're sort of going into, if you like, in terms of working from home and flexibility. I think there's absolutely opportunity to afford flexibility to good people. I think there is a question of trust mm. and trusting employees that that performances won't drop, and of course, every company has different ways of measuring that. I think yeah, the reality also, of course, is people, in my view anyway, there is a responsibility, certainly in our organisation, that our senior people have towards how they can help induct new people into the company. That doesn't necessarily mean they need to be here five days a week, every week of the year. But I think there is a balance and I think it's a question of companies trying to work out what that balance is going to be. Yeah. And as far as the actual office space is concerned, I mean, I've talked to a lot of people in commercial property who are quite confident that the office space will come back, if you like, and people will occupy it again. But there's an awful yeah. lot of it, certainly in London, um, which is empty right now. Yeah, I think you've you've got sort of two scenarios there. You've got some of the big, I mean, they've been well publicised, some of the big banks have spent a lot of money on on very big glamorous offices obviously with it to encourage people back in we've got a lot of companies that have completely shut their offices and gone fully sort of remote and then you've got what i would think is probably the mainstay of organizations who have actually reduced their office footprint perhaps invested a bit more in terms of making the office a really fun sort of cool place to be and and tie that in with an encouragement back into the office and get people actually working together again mm. i think the other thing as well mike which I think one of the, the things that's come out of the pandemic is, is social confidence. And, you know, people who have been locked up, haven't necessarily communicated other than via screens. And for many organizations, the ability to have 
meaningful conversations with clients is, is really important. And, and that skill, I think, has been really tested when mm. you've had people working remotely and on their own. Well, exactly right. But that's what I'm, I suppose I'm asking as well is what is the uh, elasticity, if you like, of, of office rent and, and office um, you know, occupation? If a company owns a lot of office space which is empty, how long before they say, do you know what? I don't think we really need to keep paying for this. Well, I, th I think there. I think well. There's probably two angles. That one is you've got obviously the option of sublet, and, you, and certainly, and we are one such organisation. Other options are that leases are coming to an end, and companies are looking at it and going, okay, well, if we're going to be at an optimum of let's say 80% occupancy as opposed to 100% occupancy, or, or even 60% occupancy, yeah. we can manage our space a bit more efficiently. Right. And actually, we reduce our footprint. We use that space on the basis of sort of hot desking or, or managers are managing their space in terms of staff coming in. One of the things that certainly come through is where you've got companies and, you know, and interestingly, the ONS was saying that uh, I think it's 50% of companies now have, have workers in some shape or form back in the office space. And then, of course, what we then try and do is, well, do we want those individuals back together on the same day? Mm. So, uh, you know, what a very popular model at the moment is the sort of three-day working week where you get everybody in certainly for two fixed days and you maybe have a third day, which is a bit more flexible. Right. Because that, that collaboration and, and learning and fun element is just so critical. Well, it really is. I mean, I find I find that to be very much the case in our business, which is obviously creative to an extent. I mean, some people might argue that it's not that creative, but, um, you know, we like to think it is the idea that you kind of mingle with other people. You have ideas that get augmented. You get suggestions from people. It's very hard to do that without actually being in the same place. Absolutely. And I think that's I mean, that, that's not to say it can't be done on screens. It can. I think it does get It's a very different dynamic, though. It is. And I think, you know, one of the things I obviously spend a lot of time talking to clients is sometimes just just making decisions. And actually, I was interesting. I was talking to some a fund manager the other day and they, they were actually talking about <clears throat> risk and the risk when you are when you are managing a fund and having your peers and people around you who can either encourage you or mm. pull you back a little bit. When you're on your own, you don't necessarily have that. No. And I, yeah, there's no question there are jobs clearly that can be done remotely. I'm not, I'm not disputing that. I guess my point on this is that those individuals around you, the sage, the sage voices around you, the friends around you, your colleagues around you, I think there is a huge amount that gets lost. And I'm in the office today, and just the ability to walk around and have conversations mm. with people. I mean. That for me, it goes above, beyond just the job. Actually, it's it's just, I think it's healthy as a human being to be able to do that. Yeah, I, I totally agree. I also don't think it's that healthy if you are working from home to be with the same people, i.e., your family, consist continually day and night. You know, I'm not sure that's a great idea either. Yeah, I mean, I think one of the things that's been challenging for a lot of people during COVID, and certainly we've experienced it, of course, is that you've got families, you've got young children, perhaps, uh, obviously, they're not in school, for example, they're being homeschooled. Mm. So actually, you know, there are benefits clearly of being able to work from home. But I think this is, in my opinion, where I think we'll probably end up, which is going to be a balance. Yes. And I think there will be flexibility that many companies afford. And I think that flexibility will be to to support the employees who have these types of challenges. Yeah. Um, I think the challenge then will be, you know, th that whole question of trust. Nobody wants to live in an environment where they're sort of, you know, they're having to sit on a screen all day long and be watched by their employer. Mm. 
So it will be a question of, well, how are we, yeah, how are we managing performance? How are we checking to ensure that performances aren't dropping and that, and that people are actually doing their jobs? Yeah, and also in the public sector. I mean, I was watching a, a, a piece the other day from the DVLA who were complaining that they're taking a long time to do uh, to turn around people's applications for licenses, particularly HGV licenses, actually. And one of the things they're blaming it on is people working from home and people social distancing in the office. So they haven't got as many people in the office. So they're actually admitting that they're not as efficient an organisation um, without people being in the office. Yeah, and, and productivity. I, I don't really think there's any clear statistics to show that. I mean, I, I often hear people saying we're more productive now than we were a year yeah, ago. Yeah, I don't believe them. Fine slightly strange because I think anybody would be more productive than what we were going through a year ago. I think how that productivity is measured is, is going to be a challenge for organizations. Um, and certainly, you know, when I think of our company, we, we have some amazing people who do work at the moment remotely or on a flexible basis and they perform. Mm. Um, one of the things that I'm always saying to them is, look, I I'd, would like you back in though for a period of time, because we've also got 25 year olds joining us who don't know how to necessarily do this job. And we need your help to help support and develop them like you had when you first started. Sure. No, I think that's absolutely right. Very interesting stuff. I'm sure we'll talk again. Toby, thank you very much indeed. Toby Felston, the Chief Executive Officer of the Robert Walters um, Company, uh, of course, talking about why it is very, very interesting now uh, that some companies are looking abroad because if you're working from home for a company, they're saying to themselves, well, actually, we could save some money here because so-and-so who works in their nice little home in leafy Surrey, who doesn't want to come into London, I can get somebody in leafy Latvia for half the money to do the exact same job. So beware if you think working from home is the answer. It may not be. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. And so um, what can I say? We've carried for many, many weeks and months on this particular station uh, phone calls from you guys, uh, lots of tweets, lots of texts as well about how difficult it's become for you to see a GP. Try to get a telephone appointment, they'll call you back. Try to get an actual face-to-face meeting, that's very, very difficult. Somebody said to me just the other day, it's easier to get um, a hearing um, and an uh, an audience with a Pope than it is to get an actual GP's appointment in most places in England. Let's find out what the problem is. Dr Charles Levinson is here. Charles, very good afternoon to you. Afternoon. Um, It's a very frustrating story, this to me, because we've been covering it for quite some time. And of course, during the period of of COVID and and lockdowns, you know, understandably, you might say a lot of GP surgeries sort of cease to operate normally. But there's no real reason now why they shouldn't be operating as they did before March of last year, is there? No, there is no reason now. And I was talking to a group of GPs, of NHS GPs last weekend, who told me that in their area, they're now seeing only half of patients. So yes. uh, um, half are being dealt with by telephone and it isn't good enough. And we, we've got a huge number of excess deaths in the home and uh, we need to start getting uh, uh, GPs to see patients. Well, this is the thing. And I mean, it doesn't appear to be an overarching group that can order them to do so. And, and I always say this because it's true. Not every GP uh, is sort of, you know, not doing their job properly, but an awful lot of them are. And I get uh, messages literally every day from people who, who have been told they can't come into the surgery. Somebody sent me a, a sign the other day, which actually said, uh, if you are unwell, please cancel your appointment and call for another one when you're feeling better. And you're kind of going, well, surely that's not really what doctors are for. No, and it's, it's, and it's not what patients want. And we, at Doctor Call, we put in a, a video app early on in the pandemic because we thought, well, patients might not want to or be able to see do- uh, uh, their, uh, or come and see us. 
and patient and it isn't used. People don't want it. They all they, they book appointments to come and see us instead. Mm. Being private sector, they can choose. But it is absolutely uh, uh, essential that uh, that we start offering offering these appointments. I think there've been mixed messages given out by the government to. Uh, the NHS at one point announced that they decided that they thought it was better that all um, GP consultations started with telephone triage. Mm. So they should all start with a telephone call. And there was a backlash and they backed down from that position. But that gave the wrong message to everyone. And then um, the fear campaign, which has uh, which is understandable, um, the, you know, the, the social scientists who advised the government, have told them if you want people to obey social distancing rules, you'd, we need to frighten them a little bit. So, mm. so, um, so there's been a fear campaign, but of course that's frightened the doctors as well. Everybody is at the moment locked in this um, situation where they are struggling to. We're struggling to get people to go back to normal. Yes, exactly right. And as you say, those who can afford it now just don't bother trying. Uh, they just go to, I mean, in London, for example, we've got lots of private clinics that you can go to. And I personally, know, I mean, I've done it myself and I know other people who have just gone there because it's easier to, to pay 50 quid to know for a fact you're going to see somebody and you're going to get the situation sorted out. Um, and so the NHS, in so many ways at the moment, particularly at the point of service, if you like, is just not fit for purpose. And yeah, and the, the private sector is not meant to be there uh, to pick up the pieces if the NHS isn't able to deliver a service. It should it should be an alternative. But the NHS, it, you know, it, it it's all there. The service can be delivered, and we just need to get to to get it going again. There is a shortage of doctors, so that that. But it doesn't save any time for the doctors doing these um, telephone calls instead of seeing patients because it, you get different figures from different places. Mm. But it's something like a quarter of patients who are dealt with on a telephone call then also go on to have to see, you know, the doctor says, either the doctor says, I can't work out what's wrong with you over the telephone, or the patient says, I'm still not happy, I want to see you. So um, so, so, so those patients are being seen twice, so yeah. it, there's no saving in it. No, there really isn't. I mean, a lot of people send me pictures of, of, of GP surgery. It's completely deserted. You know, there's literally nobody in there. Uh, I mean, if they do get the opportunity to go in and see somebody, um, you know, it's literally like walking into a kind of deserted ghost town. Um, there's, there's, there's social distancing. There's, there's all sorts of things all over. I mean, in most parts of Britain now, um, social distancing has been done away with. So why is it still in force in GP surgeries? It's um, very difficult to control the the um, NHS. It's such a huge organisation, but it um, I, I trust it will all. We will start moving in the right direction now. We've still got so. Last week there were a huge number of excess deaths in the home. Eight hundred and sixteen excess deaths in the home. Mo almost all of them were not COVID related. Mm. So those were um, people who should who should have had treatment and didn't get it and um part of it will be because patients are still afraid and we need to start uh, you know reminding people that it is safe to go out but it, part of it is that it's difficult to get care now mm. exactly right and as far as um many people are concerned they use a doctor for a lot of different things i've had taxi drivers call me up and say i can't get my taxi license renewed uh, and this was a guy in Swansea, I think, he said, because I need to show them a health certificate or that I've been checked over by a doctor and I can't get my doctor to see me. He won't see me to give me uh, a health exam. You know, same uh, same story for some HGV drivers. One of the reasons we've got a shortage is because HGV drivers can't get um, a health check to give to the DVLA. 
Yeah, well, I think, but so that that is a private service, mm. and even an NHS practice will charge them for it. And so yes, they but can, they're not doing it though. So they could, so they could take that to private clinics. But of course, there are only private clinics in in the big cities. Yeah. Really. So so you're right. It, we do. We just absolutely need to get that going again. Right. And the piece that I read in the BMA the other day from a doctor uh, who was talking about the fact that there will be even further. GP shortages um, was was banging this particular drum, which a lot of doctors do say to me that you know the the, the the business of being a GP has become more complicated. It's quite difficult. You know you're expected to run a business. Uh, you work quite long hours. You do a lot of admin. Uh, in addition to which, you're being sort of hived off to do vaccinations as well. And and they paint a picture of of a, of a kind of a business under siege. So who's right here? Well, I think it is the it is difficult the the different um, things that GPs are asked to do and the way things are changed all the time and the the, the they're sort of in in asked to work in 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 circumstances that are different from mm. day to day. But I think the but I think the biggest thing is this um, fear of of COVID. So we at Doctor Call private service we can do what we like. We offer home visits. We've got quite a lot of well, a number of doctors who are who won't do home visits anymore because they've become afraid of yeah. catching COVID, and and um, and so that I think is is a sort of national problem. But of course, I mean, people when they become doctors accept that they're going to see sick patients. When HIV started, everyone was very afraid that it would be dangerous to go near HIV patients, yeah. and the brave doctors and nurses continued to treat them. And we need people to get on and. Uh, treat COVID patients. But, but, uh, yeah, I mean, again, surely the point of, of the vaccine, Charles, is if you're a doctor and you've been vaccinated, what have you got to worry about? And we know that nearly everybody in the UK now has antibodies anyway. So, right. yes, so I think you have very little to worry about. Yeah, mm, that's right. absolutely. And as far as the kind of the future of, of GPs and the, the shortage of GPs is concerned, I mean, if as like with many things in the NHS, if this is something which is a recruitment problem, then surely you just make the recruitment process quicker and better, don't you? Yeah, it is. It is. I mean, call me old fashioned. <laughs> It is. I mean, I think one of the challenges with uh, medical recruitment is that it is that the training cycle is so slow. Yeah. So it. it um, so when you identify a shortfall, it takes a long time to put it right. Mm. But um, uh, um, but and, and fashions change and doctors don't seem to want to be GPs at the moment. No. But, I mean, could, for example, you shorten the time that you need to study in order to be a GP? Because if you're not actually going to be perhaps a surgeon, you may not have to go through all of that. I mean, that may be a naive thing to say because I don't know much about medicine, um, but I do know a lot about uh, medical services and where, and, and where they're falling down. Yeah, no, I, I can't comment on, on whether you could short-track GP training, but there is a process where, because a lot of patients don't, uh, don't a lot of situations don't require um, all the doctor's knowledge and skill and so there is a process where nurses are able to do more and pharmacists are able to do more yes. and that's absolutely right and that's already happening isn't it i mean an awful lot of people complain to me that first of all they can't even get past uh, the receptionist you know who decides is the first sort of triage level because the first person you have to get past if they even answer the phone uh, is, is, is some you know very uh, oftentimes aggressive person on the other end sort of demanding to know why you want to see the doctor yeah, and I think there's, 
you should never, as a doctor, you should never refuse to see a patient if they want to see you because people don't always um, tell you that all the reasons they want to see you, either because it's sensitive or yeah. because they don't know how to express it. And it's also, even if you see a patient and you don't really end up doing very much because they don't need very much, mm. it has value because the patient then gets to know the doctor and the doctor gets to know the patient and that just improves um, the, you know, the, the communication going forward. Mm. So, so it, is, it, it is absolutely essential that we just get everything, get doctors seeing patients again. And I'm sure we will, mm. but, we, we, that, but we need to keep banging the drum. Well, that's one of the things that people also say to me is that frank, frequently if they are given, say, um, permission to have a telephone conversation with the doctor, it's often, you know, a window of three to four hours. And they're not always uh, able to speak privately necessarily if they're in a, if they're an office or if they're working. You know, suddenly the doctor calls. They're not really that keen to maybe explain what's wrong with them uh, in an open office. No, scheduling that scheduling is one of the challenges with uh, remote consultations. Absolutely. But and the. Um, the uh, um, other thing is, but the other thing is all the non-verbal um, communications. You know, it's it, it, sometimes someone starts to say something and they hesitate, and you can see by their face that they'd like to say more if you encourage them. Um, and then, and then sometimes just examination as you walk in, mm. you can, as they walk in, you can see that something's wrong. You know, they're pale or they're shaking or they're. Um, or they're limping or um, and um, and then very often you end up do, examining them if they're there and um, and and obviously all that is lost with, yeah. with. So what's what's to be done, Charles, because I've had a lot of conversations like this with with very fine individuals like yourself. Um, uh, but we don't really solve the problem. What what do you think we could do? What could the government do or what could the NHS do? I would think they could just require, um, the, I think the NHS can make a blanket policy that um, uh, consultations should be face to face. They put in this unfortunate blanket policy that they should not be. And then in the face of public opinion, they backtracked on that. But they haven't, um, I think, been clear enough that uh, uh, in, in a requirement for, for it to happen. So it's left to local groups to work out what they think works in their area and, mm. and i think it, it it needs to be directed from from uh, our sort of central office a bit more yes i think you're absolutely right dr charles levinson thank you very much indeed chief executive of dr call uh, a doctor himself of course and if you've got a story for us on that front because we are still pushing this we are still trying to make sure that somehow people's uh, individual experiences with the doctor with the gp surgery in which they uh, where they live is actually going to be a good one because we need to fix this problem. I get a lot of people complaining about it, uh, and I would like to be able to be the person uh, to get it sorted. It might take me 14 years, like I did with the parking in the Scottish hospitals. But hey, listen, at least we're winning the campaigns over here uh, at the Independent Republican Mike Graham. We're not losing them, uh, because every time we get our teeth into somebody, they normally do what we want, because that is the way of things. 0344 499 1000. We've got LaDonna Harvey coming up shortly. Uh, we've also got lots more of your calls to take as well. Um, here's one from, um, uh, uh, who is it from? Philippine Gospel. If GPs will not do their jobs, if teachers do not want to teach, if police do not want to enforce the law, if border force do not protect our borders, why do we as taxpayers continue to employ them? That's a very good question. Philippine Gosport has hit the nail right on the head. The police are standing around engaging with people from Extinction Rebellion to find out what their plans are. Doesn't sound like that's a job for the police to me. Uh, we've got doctors who don't want to see you if you're sick. Also doesn't sound like a doctor's job. Border Force. What do we do? 
protect the borders or do we go out in boats and pick up people who want to come here illegally and help them? Mm. It's an interesting pattern this government's got, isn't it? People don't do what they're supposed to be doing. Teachers as well. How about this from Sam? Teachers desperately want to get back into the classroom to teach kids, says Roger. That's Roger Layton, who was our guest earlier. I don't believe many of them do. Historically, people generally don't have much sympathy and even regard for teachers. Opinions have only worsened over recent times. It's appalling. I think it is. Schools should be teaching children. Police should be arresting people who are demonstrating and holding up traffic. Doctors should be seeing sick people. Border force should be stopping people entering the border illegally. It's not difficult, this, is it? Government 101. Talk radio across the UK, online, on DAB and on your smart speaker. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. If you enjoyed that, be sure to catch the whole show 10 to 1, Monday to Friday, on Talk Radio via DAB online or via the Talk Radio app. And if you have an opinion on the stories we cover, we'd love to hear from you. Call us on 0344 499 1000 or tweet at Talk Radio during the show to have your say. Mid-morning with Mike Graham. Talk Radio. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns.